Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, it's about page 403 in your Bible. And uh, it comes after uh, Judges. So, uh, actually it comes after Ruth. If you find Ruth, then just go to the right. You'll need to find Judges to find Ruth. And, uh, but anyway, I want you to go there. This is a familiar story, and I'm going to tell you why that I am using this text this morning because it is important for you to know this. It is because when I was driving into town this morning by the Conoco station, it was the text from all the overflow of what has gone on this week. However, it was 1 Samuel chapter 2 that we read in the McShann reading calendar, or those of you that are doing it earlier this week. And I was sitting in my study very early in the morning, and I was absolutely crushed by the story of Eli's sons. It crushed me. It, it crushed me so profoundly into my seat that I was sitting in that I, I wanted to run, and then I began to read Romans chapter 2, and I, I, it was just a thing. I'm undone. I mean, I've, I've read this. I've preached it. I, it just crushed me. And, uh, but I've also been teaching you about grace and where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Since the curse has been lifted, you know, we need to rely on the grace of God. We need to understand the grace of God and how it works. And so what I want to share, th- this is why it is, it's emotional to me, it's powerful to me, but I'm not going to talk about Eli's son. I'm going to talk about Eli. Eli was the priest. And what I want to share with you is that Eli is an example of how to fail miserably. Eli is an example of how to fail miserably. In fact, Eli is an example for how a pastor can fail miserably. In fact, Eli is an example on how the church can fail miserably. Fail miserably. I mean miserably. You understand? Fail miserably. And so it is also a way of how a father can fail miserably. And, and, and a Christian can fail miserably. But I'm going to just talk about Eli. As a, as a steward of the gift that's been given to me, and as a steward of you, as a steward of the word, as a workman trying to show himself approved, we offer this for the glory of God. And so the whole context of this story is told in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 2 through 4, but our focus will be verses 27 through 36 this morning. So please join me there. And um, Eli is the priest. He's the number one dude in, in, uh, at, in, during the day of that time. The Ark of the Covenant is still there and all of this is taking place. You can read it. You have the calling of Samuel, Hannah's song, all of that stuff. Uh, then you have the sin of Eli's son, sons and now Eli rebukes his sons, and so now, beginning in in verse 27, 22. Now Eli was, are you with me? Say amen. And now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear. The Lord's people are circulating it. If one man sins against another, God will mediate him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and favor both in the Lord and with men. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your fathers when they were in Egypt in bondage and to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose from them, from all the tribes of Israel, to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your fathers all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifices and my offerings which I have commanded in my dwelling and honor your sons above me by making yourself fat with the choicest of every offering of my people? Therefore the Lord God of Israel declared, 
I did indeed say that your house and, and the house of your father should walk before me forever. These are, the, the, of course, the tribe of Levi. And the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, I will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling, the spite of all the good that I do, in spite of all the good I do for Israel, and an old man will not be in your house forever, yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar, so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieved, and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be a sign to you which will come, which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always. Everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, Please assign me to one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a piece of bread. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, Eli failed because he failed to raise his children by the right book. If you want to fail miserably, stop living, reading, digesting, learning, carrying, hiding in your heart the Word of God. You will fail. Period. This country was founded by people who wanted to worship God in freedom. Not in an, a, a, a church that controlled them. They did not want to be in an established church, a state religion. They wanted to worship God. And the Bible they brought to this country is known as the Geneva Bible. It is the Bible the old Puritans carried. The Puritans are the people that want to observe God, glorify Him, and live righteously before Him according to the Word. They were no prudes. They were sweet, passionate people that had lots of children. And they brought this Bible, and there was one preacher particularly of old when they came over here. His name was John Cotton. And this is what he said as a pastor. He says, feed upon the Word because it is the light of our path, the key. Now he says, feed upon the Word, and all the rest of this is in the preface of the Geneva Bible. And if you go to Washington, D.C. and to the Capitol, the Capitol Rotunda, you will see when they arrive at Plymouth, and they are holding with their hands open and their knees to the ground the Geneva Bible. That's what the Bible they're holding is. And so he preached this, and he said this from his pulpit, what is the preface of the Geneva Bible, 1599. He says, Feed upon the Word because it is the light to our path, the key of the kingdom of heaven, our comfort in affliction, our shield and sword against Satan, the school of all wisdom, the class wherein we behold God's face, the glass wherein we behold God's face, the testimony of His favor, and the only food and nourishment of our souls. That's in the cover, the flyleaf of that Geneva Bible. And so Eli lives many, many years, centuries, millennia before the pilgrims came here and the Geneva Bible was written, obviously. And uh, the reality of it is, is here is a man that is a priest. He's a priest. He is the pastor over Israel. And he has forsaken the Word of God. And so let us learn from him as the antithesis as to what we should do to not fail miserably, but indeed to live by the right book. 
And in this, I'm going to deal with our culture and with all things. Very relevant application to you on today. So begin with me. There are four things. The first thing that I would have you to write down, these are, these are things for your consideration. Number one, embrace godly values and biblical concepts. You need to embrace them like you would embrace someone for a hug. And I'm not talking about a side hug. I'm talking about an embrace and embracing the way you're going to embrace Jesus when you see him. Embrace God's values and biblical concepts. Notice it says in verse 22, see the text, it says, Now Eli was very old. Eli was very old. And what do you notice right here in verse 25? In verse 23, rather, he says to his sons, Why do you do such a thing as this? He's very old. Why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear from all these people. For the report is not good which I hear. The Lord's people are circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Well, the person that would intercede for his sons would be the priest. Right? That's what the priest did. Why is he asking that question, who can intercede for you? Because he already knows the answer. He already knows the answer. He failed. And what does this text say? He was very old. You know what that means? It was too late. Because how did they listen to him? They would not listen to the voice of their father. For the Lord desired to put them to death. They wouldn't listen. Listen, the worms were out of the can. The, the, the horse had left the barn. It's too late. They, he tried to instruct them, but it was too late. He waited too long. He waited too long. And so here is the thing. The Bible is true. God is real. Jesus is the only way. We are saved by grace through faith through to Christ, through Christ, for the purpose of righteousness and judgment is coming. You say, that sounds hard. No, listen to me. That's exactly what Paul did when he went and stood before uh, uh, Felix in Acts 24, verses 24 and 25. When he had to give an account, when he was being tried, he said, they said, why do you do what you do? And he said he stood there and he explained to the governor, to the ruler, the procurator, whatever you want to call him, the head man, the big cheese, he sat there and he explained faith in Christ. He explained to them what does it mean to be righteous. He explained to them what it means to have self-control. And he explained to them what it, that there was a judgment to come. That's what he did. That is how the Apostle Paul witnessed. That's exactly what he did. Well, let me show you something. You know, a pastor's job is a, is a job of stewardship. It's a job of stewardship. It's to steward the gift that God has given that man to preach. And it is a stewardship to make sure that that man that preaches, preaches what God says in His Word and nothing else. That's it. It's a matter of stewardship. And then God takes care of the rest. He's not made a steward to, to build sticks and bricks. It's God that builds the church. It's not the preacher. It's not the, it, it, and listen, when God decides to turn over the beehive in the church, let it be known that if the beehive was turned over in the church because the pastor told the truth, then give that man a medal because he's been faithful. Now watch this. The pastor's job is a job of stewardship. So the, he is to, what is he to do? He is to subject, you might want to write it down, he is to subject his hearers to the truth. He is to subject his hearers to the truth without regard to their response. Because the eyes he lives before are the eyes of the one who gave him the message and gave him the calling to whom he is stewarding the talent that's been given to him. The church didn't give him the talent. God gave him the talent. Right? So he is to subject his hearers to truth without regard to to their response. 
And, and here is something that we are seeing today. This has been going on for the last 80 years in this country. It is not our responsibility somehow to pull God down to this earth and conform Him to our image, trying somehow to rescue God from being a God who is holy and just. But this is what people do. They want to pull God down to conform God to our image. It is the faithful minister's job that he pulls his congregation up with himself so that they can be conformed to his image. But Eli didn't believe that. It's a whole lot easier just to be a fat cat. It's a whole lot easier just to go along with the flow. And folks, this is the priest. I mean, he might as well have been the Pope. He was the highest religious figure on this terrestrial ball. And what does God say to him? You've just gotten fat is what you've done. There is a story in Jeremiah where the Hebrew term is actual fat cat. Well, he's a fat cat. He has sent his children straight to hell. They're soon going to be going there and he won't be far behind because judgment's coming. He has neglected the authority of God. Well, some would say, oh, that's not a good thing, James. You shouldn't say that. I want to be lifted up, not brought down. Listen, we've got to quit bringing God down and live in the spirit that He's given us. The curse has been lifted so, that we, so to live in Christ and to die is gain. I've been crucified with Christ that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I cannot please God and please man. I have to please God. That's going to have something more to do with this in a moment. When you consider what's going on. So we need to, you, you have to make a, a decision. We all have to make a decision. You embrace godly values and biblical concepts or you don't. You just have to make that decision. So choose. Choose you this day whom you will serve. You have to embrace godly values and biblical concepts. Eli didn't do that. He got to see his kids murdered. And he got to see something else. He got to see the glory of the Lord taken away from Israel because the Philistines came and carried off the Ark of the Covenant. Can you imagine having to watch that? Can you imagine? It was so bad, I'm going to show you later on the text, that he fell off his stool and broke his deck and he died and followed him straight to hell with him. Because he didn't live by righteousness, he lived by what he thought was right. And right is not righteousness. He, he tried to do what he did and he didn't. He failed miserably. I, I, that's why God's given us the story. So watch this. So first of all, we want to embrace the godly values and biblical concepts. But number two, endeavor to be, endeavor to be biblically correct immediately. Endeavor to be biblically correct immediately. Notice, this is something that Eli failed to do. Go over here to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7. He failed to do this, to live in this concept of being correct. In verse 7, it says, The Lord makes poor and rich, and He brings low. He also exalts. Eli is about to be brought low. Why? Because down here in verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. And then go over here to chapter 3. Watch this. The other thing he failed to do was he failed to restrain them. He failed to restrain them. For I have told, for I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew. For the iniquity that he knew. He knew what his kids were doing. And who, what were they, by the way? They were priests, right? So he says, I'm going to judge them, him for the, forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. And then go back over here to verse 16 of chapter 2. If the man said to him, they must surely burn the fat first and then take as much as you desire, then he would say no but you shall give it to me now, and if you won't, I'll take it by force. So here's what they did. Here's the big sin. 
It's like, how did all those people eat? That's why they had the big offerings, the big sacrifices. And then the priests got to eat potluck. That's where potluck came from. You didn't know that? Potluck came from this passage. The, the, it came from the Bible. So it's very biblical to have a potluck supper. Maybe not on the grounds, but it's biblical. And, uh, but they had a potluck on the grounds there. <laughs> but nonetheless, what would happen is that people would go up to the, after all the fat had been burned and everything was done, it would go in a pot, and the priests got to go up first, and they, or, and they would go up, and the, wherever they stabbed it with their meat fork, whatever they pulled out, they got it. So, you know, they were all searching for the ribeye, okay, so to speak, or they were looking for the tenderloin. They wanted the Chateaubriand, the tip of the tenderloin. They wanted that. But if, if someone else, if they pulled out, you know, they got a, they got a flank steak on the end of their thing, and then, a, then Genevieve came up. Well, Robert would have come up. Genevieve, you wouldn't have got to pull it out of that. Robert came up, and he stuck it in there. Wake up, Robert! And uh, he st- he's awake. He stuck it in there and pulled out the Chateaubriand. This is what Hopney and Finneyhouse would say, you give me that right now. That's for me. So they wanted to take the best, and that infuriated God. It infuriated God. And they're fat because of it. They're taking the best portions. And God is being marked, mocked. And so here's the thing. There, is a, there was no embracing the values and the truth of God here. They, he, Eli knew this was happening. And these values and these concepts of God were not being valued with the offering because God has commanded how to do this in the writings of the law. And so what happens? Whose responsibility is it to correct? It is the responsibility of Eli to correct. He is the priest and corrected immediately, but he does not. He does not. So let me give you an illustration of this. Someone was asked recently, if you were sending kids to college today, what would you have them know? And the man, without hesitation, said two things without question. Number one, I would want to make sure that my children, when they go to college, had convictions. That they were convinced and had convictions, particularly about who God is, what is faith, what is righteousness, who is Jesus, what is there about the judgment. They have convictions. Because if they don't have convictions, when they go to college and the rest of life, they are going to be victims for the rest of their life because they have no convictions. When you believe that the church exists so that you can be happy, healthy, whole, and wise, you are not practicing biblical faith. You are practicing blind faith. And so this man says they must be people that can sit there in a class and and their convictions will hold, but that's not good enough. They not only need to have conviction about what they believe, why they believe it, but they also must be taught how to critically think. This has fallen on terrible times today. People who critically think are even considered by others as know-it-alls. Well, let them say what they wish. Because people that call people names, one thing they're not doing is thinking. There it takes no IQ to be a critic, to criticize somebody. It takes no IQ whatever. A toad can do it, I guess. Hadn't asked one. And so listen... They need, to go to, they, know how, they need to know how to critically think. When they sit there and some professor says A and they know the answer is B, they know how to critically think. They need to know that in their conviction that they, here I stand, I will not be moved. And people can say, you know what, if you keep doing that, you're going to keep getting the same thing you got. Listen, if it's what God wants, you know what, this is not the reward. The reward's to come and He is looking for those who will not bend their knee to bail. And so they got to know how to critically think and they got to have conviction. So let's, let me use a little example for you from our modern culture today in America. doesn't seem to be really happening in other places on this earth. But I want to ask you if you are familiar with the, if you could tell me 
the definition. I mean, if I walked up to you right now, please tell me what is meant by postmodern relativism. You need to know how to you need to know what that is. Postmodern relativism. What if I came up to you and I said, woke? I'm awoke. No, I'm not awoke. Woke. If I walked up to you and, and, and a person came up to you, a believer, and they asked you, what is critical race theory? Would you know how to respond? What if someone walked up to you and said the Equality Act? Do you know what the Equality Act does? Do you know what it will do to this country? Do you know what cultural appropriation is? Do you know what cultural appropriation is? Do you know what political correctness is? Do you know what that leads to? Cancel culture. You know who invented that? Christians. Christians invented cancel culture because they could not solve the cognitive dissonance that one person thinks this and another person thinks that. So what do they do? They shoot each other. The only army that shoots itself. And I would not say those are genuine Christ followers anyway. I'd say they're more like Eli Christians. But they would, they would die on a hill to tell you they're Christians. And that's fine. They will die. There is no doubt about that. The reality of it is the kids that are going to school today are going out in the culture or even turning on the news are hearing, and you too, ladies and gentlemen, are hearing about postmodern relativism, about wokeness, about critical race theory, about uh, the Equality Act, cultural appropriate. You say that stuff doesn't matter. It is, it, let, let me tell you why it does matter. It matters to God because God's values are His values. You say, well, you can't legislate that. Well, Richard Dawkins just opened a whole thing the other day for me to be able to now debate whether you can legislate morality. And I'm going to invite someone to debate me here that holds a different view in front of all of you. Soon. I just haven't asked him yet. And it is this. Richard Dawkins says that religion should be kept out of the discourse of legislation. No one should, should believe in religion and no religious values should be legislated. So he says religious opinions do not matter. What is Richard Dawkins? He is a God denier. He is an anti-Christian and an atheist. And so this is what he is saying. He is saying my, my, my morality trumps your morality. So you keep your morality out and I'll keep killing the babies. When he says, well, you're, you are not pro, you're pro-life, which is, a, which is a religious view. Folks, you don't have to be religious to be pro-life. The scientists will tell you that it's killing a child, and the philosophers will tell you it's killing a child. So is he going to silence them too and their morality? Just because I want abortion abolished legally and legislatively does not mean I am legislating my morality. I am legislate asking what is right because all law is moral and the universal moral law that covers all of eternity is called what? The universal moral law of God. When I go and share the gospel with people at their house, knock on the door, say, if you come to a place of spiritual life, you know for certain that you die today, you go to heaven, is that something you're still working on? This I'm still working on. Well, how do you know if you stood before God and He said, what, why should I let you into my house? Why should I, what, what, did you, what would you say? And He said, well, I, you know, I'm not perfect, but I did something. And I would ask this, how do you know you're not perfect? Did your mama tell you you weren't perfect? Did you have one of those mamas? My mama said I was. I was a cute kid. I had to become a pastor to learn I wasn't. <laughs> and, uh, and been told I'm a cute kid in a long time. It's all right. And so how did you learn, how did you learn that what is right and wrong? How come the Chinese 3,000 years ago had a moral law? They'd never heard the law of Moses. How come the Hindus and the Mesopotamians and the steel of Hammurabi? How is that all moral? Where did that come from? It didn't come from the law of God. It's because Romans 1 says, God has written the law on the heart of man, therefore he is without excuse. And the curse of the law is this. You break it at one, you broke all of it. And so here's the thing. People say, well, you need to be discerning. Let me tell you what discernment is. Discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. Discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. And it is the little things that matter. It is the fly in the ointment that has derailed the church. 
and see the church needs a reformation because we're living in a culture that does not look like it has been impacted at all by the church, but in fact the culture has impacted the church. As Jeremiah says, Lord, give me the old paths. One of the things we're doing, we've got hymn books sitting over there. We're going to be singing out a hymn book soon. You know why? Because I can teach you more theology singing hymns than I can having a month of Sundays of classes up here every day. You can learn about the Trinity and holy, holy, holy. You can learn about the holiness of God and, and uh, He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. The greatest theological hymn there ever was, in my opinion. And you like, you call the greatest one that you like the greatest one. It's okay. But here's the thing. We need to endeavor to be biblically correct immediately. So the pulpit must be a place not of just encouragement, but of exhortation and of correction. Eli wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it because somebody was feeding him the choicest meat. And he would not rein in his kids. And so, number three, not only should we embrace godly values and biblical concepts, but we, need to, we also need to endeavor to be biblically correct immediately. And you say, well, I don't know how to do that. Yes, you do. Read the Word. Sit down and start reading it. Just read it. Get it into your heart. It's going to take you a lifetime. You say, it's too late to start over. It is. It is too late to start over, but it's not too late to start. Amen? Amen? I was sitting with Truett the other day at, at a meal with another a fella, and I, and I looked at him in my eyes, in his eyes, through my eyes, and I looked at him. I said, you have to promise me you will do this when you raise your children because I didn't do it to him. You have to promise me. See, friends, you need to grasp something. I'm going to preach about it soon. The church is to be unique. It's to be unique. It is supposed to be totally different than the culture. And what do you see today? The lack of uniqueness. Is that because it's just about money and the draw? And all? No, it's because no one recognizes the uniqueness of Jesus. But we had a hymn that we used to sing about that years ago too. Jesus paid it all. But we've added to it, Jesus paid it all plus my prayer to receive Jesus. We're no different Roman Catholics if we believe that. Because we believe it's grace plus. There can be no plus to grace. Grace is grace. If you don't know what I mean, get the CD from last week. Edify God by putting Him first. Write that down. Number three, edify God by putting Him first. Oh, I'm just making great time here. Notice the Bible tells us that judgment was on Eli and his house and the guy was a priest. That is not who you would expect the, the, the judgment to be on. You'd expect the judgment to be on the Philistines. No, it's on the house of the priest. This guy's the priest. And look what happened in verse 29. Go right here. 29. Watch this. It says, Why do you kick at my sacrifices and my offerings which I have commanded in my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel. He's a priest. And here's what happened. You know what the answer to the question is? The answer is because he put himself first. He put himself first. He did not take the worship of God seriously. If you want to put yourself first, if you want to know if you're putting yourself first, write these down. These are some things that you can look at and you can say, all right, am I doing this? And if I am, then this is something I can repent of, okay? So here's the first one. Not taking the worship of God seriously. Ladies and gentlemen, the Sunday after... Labor Day, the Journey Church will begin having Sunday night worship services. We will begin at 5.30, it will end at 7, and I will preach for an hour. And we will sing. We will not bring dinner. We will sing, we will pray, and we will have church. And starting also Wednesday night, we will do the same thing. On Sunday nights... I'm going to preach the Song of Solomon. I have found the path. I sent you all an email this morning. Please read it. And on Wednesdays, I'm going to preach 1 John. Because we don't have any more time. And on Sunday morning, we're going to have church. And we're, there's a few of us having a discussion. We're about to tell you the Sunday morning sermon is going to be this long. It will never be shorter. And that's just the way it is. The church has to be unique. If, listen, if you were a jury 
and I was your lawyer, and I was making my closing argument, depending on how the prosecution did and your life was in the balance, the last thing I would look at is time. And I've been schooled in public speaking my whole life. But what is the purpose of the church? The purpose of church is to call sinners to repentance, whether they're saved or lost. But the church does not exist for the lost person. The church exists for the saved person. It is their body, not the lost body. That's what the boys club's for, or the YMCA, or the whatever else social organization. The church is the church of the redeemed, not the church of the unredeemed. But how do people get saved? They get saved by the preaching of the word and the example of the saints and the testimony of righteousness and the discipline of self-control and the understanding of the judgment to come. You say, where do you get this? Paul the apostle. It's what he did. And just like if the New American Standard 95 version was good enough for the Apostle Paul, so is his evangelism for us. Amen? One time I preached and this old man, he said, you preached so good this morning, but I mean, I hadn't even been to seminary yet. I was still in college. You preached so good this morning, but tonight you absolutely disgraced your father who died because you didn't use the King James. And I'm telling you it was good enough for Jesus, Peter, and Paul. But I'm going to tell you back then, it hurt me something serious and I started becoming acquainted with that pain. Never spoke to the man again. His name Bob Spiegel. He's found out in heaven that God does not go, Helloeth thee, Bobbeth. And uh, he, he did not take the worship of God seriously. Number two, he did not place God above his sons. You put... You fill in the blank. What do you put above God? Your health? Your intellect? Your understanding? Your knowledge? What do you put above God? Your, your friendship? Your community position? What do you put above that? Your wife? Your kids? What do you, your mom? Or whatever. What do you put above God? Eli did not place God above his sons, as it says right here in verse 29. And here's the other thing. Number three, he took care of himself before he cared for God. So here's the, these are the three things you can ask yourself if, you're, if you are putting, God's first, putting God first. Do you, do you worship God? Uh, do you worship God and take Him seriously? Do you take worship seriously? Number two, have you placed anything above God in your life? You have to ask that. And if you have, the beautiful thing is, if you're in Christ, the curse is lifted. If you're in the state of grace, the curse is lifted. You can run to Him and repent and start over. Amen? If you're under the curse, you're never going to be good enough. So keep trying. Number three, He took care of Himself before He cared for God. And so look what happened. Go over here to chapter 4. Look what happened. I'm actually almost finished. I'm going to get a napkin. I need to, I'm sweating. And see what I did this week? Look at this. I bought myself some nice fans to, you know, cool me off. And uh, they're still in the box. That's a hint. It's just a hint. Don't know what to say about it. Still in the box. Be real helpful if you understood what that hint was. In chapter 4, Verse 11, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I'm not going to read it because I want to have the rest of the time to, to finish up. But in chapter 4, verse 11, 1 through 11, the Philistines take, a word, take away the ark. Now, who comes and pronounces the judgment? The boy that was raised in Eli's house, Samuel. Now, I named my son after this man, Samuel, because there is no record in Scripture where it is recorded that he sinned. But like my son, I know he did but it's not written, recorded. Samuel got out of the Bible without it ever being recorded that he sinned against the Lord. So I was stacking the deck. So the, the Philistines draw up for battle, and what takes place? The Philistines rout them, and, uh, the, and what takes place? 
So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the ark of the covenant of God. In verse 5, And the ark of the covenant of the Lord came unto the camp. All Israel shouted with a great shout. Now, what does that mean? The presence of the Lord is with us. But you've got to remember something. The presence of the Lord doesn't just mean love. Sometimes it means judgment. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout and all that happened, and then what happened? They attack. What goes on? They beat them, kill Hophni and Phinehas. They take the Ark of the Covenant. Then later on in chapter 4, Eli hears about this from Samuel. Samuel tells him, Eli falls over and breaks his neck. And thus, now what has taken place? Eli, one of the two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, has a baby that's been born that winds up something terrible happens to it. And, but what do they name it upon finding out that the father is dead? They name it Ichabod. And Ichabod means the glory of God has departed. Ichabod. Ichabod. The glory of God has departed. Why did the glory of God depart? For one reason. They did not take the worship of God seriously. They did not place... God first in all things. They did not take care of God's stuff. They took care of their stuff first. They did not embrace godly values and biblical concepts. They did not endeavor to be biblically correct immediately. They did not edify God by putting Him first in number four. They did not. Well, we're not talking, we're using the infant, the antithesis. So here's, what, here's number four. Living by the right book, exemplify what God wants us to follow exemplify what God wants us to follow. Remember, remember this, lamps don't speak, they shine. Lamps don't speak, they shine. Now, before I move on, I want to give you an illustration about friendship, though. Because some might be, you're, you're already worried. You've already taken this thing to the whole extreme. You think, James just become a legalist and all that. If you were here Wednesday night, you would know it is absolutely impossible for a Christian to even think you could be a legalist because you can't be. It's impossible because the curse is broken. There's nothing to be legalist to, right? We learned that. All right, now watch this. Jesus was a friend of sinners. We have a song in the old hymn book like that too. What a friend we have in Jesus. Right? And the Bible says not only is he the friend of sinners, but he is closer than a brother. But you see, here's the real truth of it that you see in Eli and his sons and you see today in the church and you see today in your carryings on in society. There are three types of friendship, and I want you to write down just three words. One is utility, one is pleasure, and the other word is mirror. Just write down utility, pleasure, and mirror. It's utility, friendship, there is utility, there is, there is, uh, now see, I've gotten off. There's utility, then there is pleasure, and then there is mirror. Now let me explain this to you. People are friends with people for purposes of utility. For the purpose of utility, what that means is I want to be friends with my barber, right? Because I don't want him to cut my ear off. He wants to be friends with me so he won't cut off my ear so I will give him money next time and get my hair cut there, right? And since I get my hair cut every week, every barber likes me right? Unless they cut my ear. And so what you have is you have a mutual advantageous relationship. It's a mutually advantageous relationship. I'm friends with the barber. You may be friends with the lady that cuts your hair. You may be friends with uh, uh, the, the repairman, you know. You don't want the repairman to come over and tick him off where he decides to stay there for all day. It's $175 an hour. That's not an idea, Robert. It doesn't need to be that much. So this, this is not really, you, you would call that person a friend, but it's really an acquaintance. It's an acquaintance because the friendship is based upon mutual return of benefit. That's it. So it's a friendship of utility. But then there are friendships of pleasure. The, this, is, this is a term you can use for friend. This is, a ter- this is the friendship of pleasure. 
This is a friendship that you would have with a person you play 42 with once a month. This is the friendship you have with a person that's, that you play golf with regularly on your golf team or your lunch club. This is a person that, that is a, a, you know, you receive a mutual benefit from being each other that is pleasurable, right? Not necessarily financial, but pleasurable. But here's what makes it different. If you move to another place, that friendship of pleasure does not continue. Or that per let's say that you meet at one place to have breakfast and you've always, like, you know, before the fried pie closed, there's a group that met down there all the time to have breakfast. And then it closed. And then they went over here to the Trails Inn. And then the fried pie became whatever new pie it is. And half of the Trails Inn group stayed there. And the other group went there and some went to Brahms. And so their friendship is no longer the friendship it was because it was an acquaint it was a friendship based upon pleasure but when time and space separate it, it, it there's not enough to hold it together philosophically we should prefer indifferently that we have good relationships with our barber and with our breakfast club but whether you do or you don't doesn't it stop the world but then there is this term mirror this is mirror. This means mirror, like M-I-R-R-O-R, -R -R, or as we say in Texas, mirror, or Oklahoma, mirror. It's a mirror. Mirror, America, and mirror, you know, okay? So it is the friendship of the good. Write down those three words. Friendship of the good. It's a mirror. This is not a friendship to our intellect or to our flesh. This is the friendship to our souls. And this friendship is not derived off of mutual benefit from each other. It is not derived off of symbiosis. What this friendship is based upon is the total desire to do good for that person. And by doing that good to that person, you are literally mirroring for them what they want or should have. And so it is this idea where both good is given and received. You can't have a friend like that that will not receive from you. You can't. You might think that person's really close to you. They're not. Their relationship is either one of pleasure or utility. But if a person will not listen to you, will not hear you out, will not talk to you, that is not a mirroring friendship because it's about them, not you. In a mirroring friendship, the friendship is all about them and they're all about you. And here's what distinguishes it. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter where you go. And I know I have a few of these, but one of them that I have absolutely no doubt of is Johnny McGregor. Johnny has lived all over the place. I've been his pastor twice. He's given his ties to this church. He, he and I talked, we talked four times this week, all theology and funny stuff too, all this stuff, but it didn't matter. And he's always told me truth, and I've told him truth. He's trying to lead a Church of Christ guy to Christ, but he's got to get the Church of Christ guy out of the Church of Christ thing. And so I'm helping him with that, and then he's helping me with some stuff that's going on between my head and ears. Yeah. And, uh, and so that is not a friendship of utility. That's not a friendship of pleasure. That's a friendship of mirror. Now, who does that? Jesus Christ. But you see, people come to the church for utility. Pastor gives me this, I take that. He'll give me a piece of his time, I'll give him a piece of my income. Or it's a piece of pleasure. Oh, I just like church because that's your thing. That's your thing. You just like church people. You know, I, I get, I, there's a mutual benefit from it. I just get a rise out of going to church. And then I go home and watch my favorite preacher. When God's given you a pastor. And then folks think that they can have that relationship with a pastor. You can't. It's impossible. Because here's the reason. When the minister of, the God, when the minister of God speaks, his words are to be wise and weighty. And something I'm working on in my own personal life having been convicted to be a steward and knowing that it is too late to start over but I must start is this I cannot waste my words on people that will not listen to me if I want my words to be powerful 
And so someone would say, well, that sounds unloving. And what God did to Eli is unloving. So let me show you this, and then I'm going to wrap it up with the last thing. Let me show you this. Some say that this is not loving what God did, and some of you are thinking that I'm not being loving what I said because you don't understand. Let me show you something. Love is telling people good things, right? Amen? Telling them things that make them feel good. Would you agree? It's not a loaded question, right? It's telling them things that are right. It's telling them things that are good. It's telling them things that are easy to hear, easy to understand. Is that good? That's good. Yeah, it is good. It is a good thing to do. But it is also good to tell them what they don't want to hear. It is also good to stretch them. It is also good to help them feel uncomfortable. And if a guy is a friend and is a mirror, he's going to do that. And he may think that he's your friend by doing it to you, but he is no friend to you if you can't do it to him. It is a relationship of acquaintance or utility. And so here is the thing. The reality of it is, is love is telling people the good and the bad and the ugly. What is not loving is to be indifferent. That's what happened to Pharaoh. So all of you that were shaking your head while ago about good, you're now shaking your head like this because you understand what James said. What is, good, what is love is to tell what is the good, the bad, and the ugly. But what is not loving is to be indifferent. So if you see it, Ainsley, let's say precious Ainsley, happy birthday, goes walking across the street over here and she hears the big boy choo-choo train coming through Gainesville and she looks down there at that train and there's a car coming at her. Some of you wouldn't even tell her to watch out because you'd be afraid to be sounding unloving. Because you think love wins. It doesn't. The attribute of God's love does not demand all of the attributes of God to bend to His love. He is I am. He is the summation of all of those things. Some would go out there and yell at the top of their voice and say, Get your tail out of the road, redhead! And my wife would say, That wasn't very nice. And Dana would say, Thank you, Pastor. See, people come to things with different philosophical perspectives. I can't do anything. We just have to teach the truth. Go home and see, is, this, is the Bible a liar? So here's the idea. There is this love. And God wants this friendship with you. This friendship of a mirror. So what did He do? He gave you the Old Testament, which is the mirror. He showed His character and He shows that we're not His character. So we need to read it. And he showed in the New Testament how that he has overcome the righteous requirements of the law through the person of Jesus Christ, that he has raised you from death to life, and that through him now you can go give your life and try and try and try again like Thomas the train or the little train that could rather. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, and let Christ live in you and start developing the character of God. Eli said no. As long as they're feeding me, as long as people are coming, as long as people feel accepted, as long as my boys are doing it, it doesn't matter. God killed him for it. And so, exemplify what God wants us to follow. Hophni and Phinehas did what was right in their own minds and no one was going to tell them different. I heard, I had a person come in the other day. She said she came seeking me. She was raised in a very strict religious home. She said, I don't care if you tell me what you believe or not. Just don't force it upon me and I won't force your beliefs, my beliefs on you. Well, I'm sorry. You came to see me. You don't have to come back. And what are my beliefs in this book? Lord, help me understand what you mean in the historical, grammatical genre that it's written. What did the writer mean when he wrote to the people they were writing to? Help me, Lord. They don't come for me. They think they are. They're, they're seeking good and hopefully they'll find Jesus. So here's the thing. No one was going to tell them any different. Why? Because they watched their father. So they learned from Eli that you just do whatever you want to do. No one's going to... I mean, I guess I, Eli was a tough guy. So they looked at Eli and said, you know what? Why should we listen to him? He never did it. So what did he do? Hobney and Phinehas said, we're not going to do it either. No one's going to tell us what to do. We're going to sleep with all the women that serve at the temple. Can you imagine going to church potluck and all you ladies are sitting there like the Seder, and you're serving the Seder meal like that, and Hophni and Phinehas walk in, what are you going to do? Run, Forrest, run. 
Because what's he gonna, what are they going to do? They're going to try to say, hey, this is a hotel. Why don't we go over to room 666? Right? That's what they did. And Eli didn't stop them. And so watch this. As I conclude, what, what, what do we need to do? Today the church is no different. It needs a reformation. It needs a reformation. You know why? Because people are drawn to the big. And I'm going to tell you something. It's one thing to preach to 6,000 people, and that's great if you're preaching the Word of God to 6,000. If there's 6,000 people to sit in one room and listen to you hurl forth the Word of God. But there's just as much to go helping some orphan in a foreign country. We're just drawn to the big. I sat with an illustrious pastor in this of this town last Friday and he declared to me all of us churches in this town are going to have to conform to the new church's style of worship because if we don't we're going to sink and I looked at him and I said brother we're not we're going the other way he said what do you mean you're going the other way I said we're not going that path Jeremiah said the prophet he said oh Lord give us the old paths give us the old paths he said you're crazy I said, that's why I left your church where I used to pastor. I've always been crazy because I still believe this book. And so here's the idea. The church doesn't know how to fish anymore. The church doesn't know how to fish anymore. Jesus said to the disciples, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. It doesn't know how to fish. It thinks it fishes through music. It thinks it fishes through 27-minute sermons. It thinks it fish. Listen, we're not preaching for the people that are not here. We're preaching for you as a stewardship. Right? We're preaching for me, for stewardship. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Church doesn't know how to fish. So there's a great illustration about this that any of you who've been in church long enough, you've heard it. It's the story about the pelicans in Monterey, California. Back when the cannery was there. And the pelicans would come there to, the, to Monterey, California. And they would come and they would fly over. And while they were cutting up the meat and all this stuff at the cannery, they would throw the trimmings out. And all the pelicans would come down and they would eat all of the trimmings. And something began to happen to the pelicans. The pelicans got too fat to fly. And why did they get too fat to fly? Because they stopped fishing. They didn't, know how, they didn't fish anymore. So what did they do? They just waited out there until they came at the cannery and threw the scraps out and the pelicans ate them and they just laid out there fat and happy until the day the cannery closed. And all of a sudden there was a pandemic in California. Those tree huggers got upset because the pelicans were dying the pelicans had forgotten how to fish. And the pelicans were starving. They say there were so many dead pelicans, it took bulldozers to bulldoze them up and out to be burned. It was terrible. So you know what they did? They probably hired some Aggie uh, veterinarian because it could only be this absurd that it would work. They said, go put regular pelicans out there amongst the living pelicans. And so they imported all of these pelicans. I don't know how they did it. But they brought in all of these pelicans that knew how to fish and put them with those dying pelicans. And all of a sudden, those pelicans began to learn how to fish again because something real had been put in their place. The church doesn't even know what is real anymore because it has chosen not to embrace godly values and biblical concepts. It has chosen not to endeavor to be biblically correct immediately. It has chosen not to edify God by putting Him first. And it has chosen, and this one we see the most, it has chosen not to exemplify what God wants us to follow. And so what do you have here? You have a pattern of passion, you have a pattern of pursuit and a pattern of priority, not a pattern of perfection. It's a pattern. 
So we live in uncertain times. We live in uncertain times, don't we? You say amen. I close my Bible. Just listen. We live in uncertain times. And brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you, if you will take these four things, there's one thing that should come about for sure. Because of the uncertain times we live in, we should be moved to pray about them, to pray about the times. But this is not the time for Christians to circle the wagons. It is not the time for you and I to step back, to turn back, and it is not necessarily the time to go run forward either. And it's by all means not the time to go hide under the bed. No, it's not that time. You know what time it is? It's time to put our hand on the plow. It's time to put our hand on the plow and keep it there. Why? Because we keep sowing the seed. We need to keep sowing the seed. And we need to keep being faithful in what we do. And our King and our Lord sits high upon the throne. And what does He do right now? He laughs at the futility of the nations. He laughs. I was telling a brother the other day about the vaccine and all this stuff and there's all the views on it and I've told you how I feel about it and, and I have done a little bit of study on it. But here's the thing. I told this fellow, I said, What's go- what my biggest fear is on the vaccine is that they don't go to the legislation and s- legislature and say you have to take it. They go to the courts. And the courts say you have to take the vaccine, period. There's only one problem. If they do that, they're going to run up against Roe versus Wade that gives a woman's right to choose. And I said, they'll never do that because that's the golden calf. And ABC News on Friday afternoon, David, came out and said, it is the people that have been vaccinated that are the problem, not the unvaccinated. And consequently, we need to stop vaxxing. Why? Because they've run head and toes and tails straight into Roe versus Wade. The woman's right to choose for her own body. I didn't hear that from anybody. You heard it from here. They run right in, and that's the golden calf. But if they can tell you, you have to take a shot, your freedoms are gone. It doesn't matter what you believe about anything else except God, all your freedoms are gone because then it's done. It's over. You no longer have sentience. Does that mean I need to worry about this? Some of you can go home this afternoon and say, where do you find that? You're not going to find it anywhere. You've heard it here. just got recorded. So if you go out there and repeat it, you better give me credit for it. I don't care. I get credit for everything else I didn't say. (laughs) It's like if the tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, is it still the man's fault, the husband's fault? Yes. Listen. I'm done. Our King and Lord sits in the heavens. He laughs at the futilities of the nation. He has decreed that the gospel will go forth and nothing will stop it. He has decreed this. And we have the privilege of being a part of it. You and I have the privilege of being part of it. Is the church perfect? No, but her groom is. And he is making us a perfect church. Because there's going to be a consummation and when we do what? When we quit groaning about the earth and start groaning about the fulfillment to come, we know that no matter what, it's all going to be good. And He has decreed as He laughs over the earth that His gospel will go forth and He says, I'm going to let that little church on the corner without a steeple that nobody knows called the journey go out there and keep preaching. I'm going to go inspire those people and light them up, the ones that will stay and listen to me I will go, God says, and I'm going to do something. And I'm already showing that I'm doing it in India. Because I'm not going to do it the way man does it. I'm going to do it the way I do it. And then what does he do? He says this. He says, you have the pleasure to advance the gospel. So what do we do in light of this? Eli blew it. What do we do? We keep our hand on the plow. We keep preaching the gospel. We keep rescuing the perishing. And we do it all for the glory of God. Hallelujah. And so... You will be defined by somebody. You will be defined by somebody. You will be defined by somebody and you will be defined by something. And I can tell you, 
you already know who and what it is because your actions betray it. And if you look at your actions and they betray, that your actions will betray who defines you. I do believe in many cases I can define myself, but I'm going to tell you what, that's not the hope I live by. I hope and pray, I hope and pray to God as a steward that my life and actions will be defined by Jesus in the right book. Amen. Let's stand. Holy God, it's an offering to you, asking your spirit to take all that we have heard and apply it deep into our hearts and our souls. Father, to renew our mind. For Eli, his failure was a dead-end path, but for us living these are positive exhortations that we can accomplish through the life of Christ and the power of His Spirit. Everything that you have laid on us this morning, we can do it. And we don't have to do anything but rely upon the power of the Spirit and the life of Christ. This is not an impossible thing. This is a beautiful thing. You have saved this earth over and over again by your hand, handiwork through the people that would not bend their knees to bail to the culture or anything else but those who sought after you. Father, as a pastor of a huge flock of people, way bigger than I can handle, I pray, Father, this would be our meat and marrow for everything. It kind of uncomplicates life completely, especially since we understand you have lifted the curse and we live in grace. That our failure will never be final like Eli's was. He looked to the wrong place. And I pray, Father, we would look to the right person and the right thing, Jesus Christ, and his word. For Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. And for Christ became sin for us who knew no sin that we could become the righteousness of God. So, O oh Lord, form us and fit us better for these days of reformation, not only for the healing of our land and our families, our finances and our futures, our churches, but Father, our healing of pessimism. Give us the hope that surpasses all understanding that rests in the faith of Christ, knowing that we have heard this day fully the word of God declared in power and in spirit. And we thank you for it as we go, looking for the victory to come, in Jesus' name, amen.